How We Got Here is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. This podcast is also sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Welcome, everyone, to this bonus episode for season four. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa, and I am joined by the man of the hour. He needs no introduction. Well, for some of you, he might, because you don't hear his voice as often as you hear mine. Colton Weekly, executive producer extraordinaire. Yes, this season I did not get to do my 1920s newsman voice, so I think my voice was completely absent from season four, but that's okay. But you were in that great bonus episode we produced, traipsing all through the woods for the Churchill Tunnel Collapse, so you get a break. That's true. I did put on waders to walk through garbage and thorns to find an old tunnel in the city of Richmond, which I have to say was more exciting than I guess I make it sound with the traipsing through trash. That was a good time. I was was glad that we were able to do a couple of bonus episodes, actually, for our listeners ahead of season four dropping the uh, Churchill Tunnel, as well as Francis Gary Powers Jr., your discussion with him and uh, May Day over Moscow. Both fascinating stories that we actually um, had a few viewers contact us about. And Rachel, as you said, I believe in that episode, we give the listeners what they want. And season four has been a doozy for a number of reasons. One, we produced this entire season in a pandemic. The last time around in season three, the, you know, we kind of had already done all the hard work before the pandemic hit and we dropped it in the pandemic. But this one, we did everything in the middle of a pandemic. Plus, you know, Colton might've had a baby too. (laughs) Well, I I didn't have a baby, but yes, my wife had a baby. They're both doing very well. My little girl's doing well, so that was good. But yes, it's been a, as this year has cliche goes, a year unlike any other. It's been a season for how we got here unlike any other. Trying to do this all 95% virtually. And the listeners, what they don't hear is all the technology issues that we have, including recording this episode for you. We're going and and we're making it happen just like we made season four happen and hopefully uh, future seasons as well and there was some really rewarding stories in this season i have to say some great interviews and some amazing storytelling that colton is a big part of he writes a lot of what we produce here on how we got here one of my favorite stories from episode one and there's two favorites i'm going to single out but one of my favorites is George Mason. The segment of the episode is George Mason dies, but it is so fascinating to learn about George Mason's life. And really for me, it was all the contradictions in his life. And we kind of entitled it, you know, contributions and contradictions because it is so frequent in all of the founding fathers. Especially now that I think society and 
and people looking back into history are kind of, as we did with the story of Lewis and Clark later, kind of pulling off this sheen of myth-making, um, as Dr. Smithers at VCU called it, with the Lewis and Clark story. But even for, like you said, other founding fathers, if we talk about, you know, Jefferson and Sally Hemings, that is becoming something that Monticello is having to address. Washington and his slaves. And as you said, with George Mason, I think he's one of those Virginia founding fathers that he kind of gets pushed into the shadows because it's hard to compete with Jefferson, Washington, Madison, Monroe. And then it's like, who's this other M name guy? Oh yeah, George Mason. Fascinating. That was a wonderful interview you did with uh, Rebecca Martin up at Gunston Hall. For a founding father that's so lost in the shadows, what what huge contributions he made to this young country, but huge contributions that, as you said, he then contradicted in his own personal life. Stark contrast, pushing for this country to be, but couldn't quite be himself. Rebecca Martin said it best in the episode when she said, George Mason said beautiful things about all men being created inherently free and equal, and yet he owned other people. He had the opportunity to free people he owned, and he didn't take it. And so we see in George Mason a kind of microcosm of the conflict that started our country. It's so important to give context to everything we're talking about today, how the Constitution and everything was kind of how everything was set out is still playing out today. We're not that far removed from any of this. I saw an article just a few weeks ago that President John Tyler still has a surviving grandson. Yes, the 10th president of the United States, the 10th, has a grandson, not a great-great-great-grandson, a, a grandson still living. I believe he's 90 years old. That to me blows my mind every time, and people always say, oh, it's just a little footnote of history. But that was, you know, the 10th president, and we're now potentially getting to our 46th president. I don't know, it just, it just blows my mind that we're not that far removed from really any of this. And there's one other thing about this segment of episode one that truly just is one of the most amazing things that... I don't think, I think Colton's ever heard. He helped create it. I think he wishes he never created it. The beloved fan favorite, everybody wants to hear it, Patrick Henry remix. Let it come! Forbid it, almighty God! Let it come! Forbid it! I know not what course others may take. But as for me, forbid it, almighty God! Let it come! Give me liberty, or give me death! This is like my Frankenstein. Why did I do this? Um, <laughs> Rachel wanted to have fun with this. Uh, uh, Patrick Henry audio that we got back in season one. I think I was a little delirious as I was putting this together. I've always liked music, but uh, as I was writing this, I knew this was not going to be good music per se. And then Rachel ran with my script and 
use the music. And I know she had some help from our good friend, photojournalist Dan Hefner, to kind of finesse it together. A monster was born. And yes, uh, Rachel finds every opportunity to use it that she can. Don't worry. It'll be in the next season somewhere. I just know it. <laughs> Let's talk about the other favorite thing about episode one. And that would be Gabriel's Rebellion. A lot of parallels to the George Mason story as far as you're talking about the founding fathers and you're talking about what they created. And here is this man born in 1776 and he's fighting for his freedom. And Colton, the thing that struck me the most that still stays with me and makes this one of the most important stories we told is the fact that we learned from Dr. Karen Sherry of the Virginia Museum of History and Culture that he was planning to have this white flag with the words of Patrick Henry on it, give me liberty or give me death. That just blew my mind. I stumbled upon the story actually shortly after I moved to Richmond. Every morning I drove to work, I drove by the historical marker on East Broad Street, the bridge over 95. I believe it says either Gabriel's Rebellion or, you know, Gabriel was hanged near this spot. I remember thinking, okay, I learned about that in my education in East Central Minnesota. I learned about Gabriel, but it was, you know, one page in a history book and that was it. The plan to kidnap Virginia's governor and demand freedom and then ultimately have the plan revealed. Miss Gabriel was betrayed not once, but potentially twice. Here's this young kind of charismatic figure, right, who's fighting for not only his own freedom, but the freedom of his brothers and sisters. And it is his brothers who betray him and they end up gaining their freedom. Again, I come back to the, the contradictions of our society and why we should all know these stories, because you have to see the contradiction to understand how we got here today. Episode two, one of my favorite stories we told in that episode was Elizabeth Van Loo. And I love it so much because we told the story of her slave, Mary Bowser Mary Denman, Mary, whatever you want to call her, because she went by so many names. We told that story in season three. This season, we got to tell the story of Elizabeth Van Loo. And really, I shouldn't call Mary Bowser exactly her slave, because Elizabeth Van Loo didn't believe in slavery and did her best to free Mary Bowser from this situation she was in. And that's why it's so incredible, that story of Elizabeth Van Loo, this strong woman of character who stayed with her convictions in the city of Richmond in the middle of the Civil War. Yeah, and I think that story also, we're talking about the role of women in the patriarchy of the Civil War at those times. Elizabeth Van Loo and her mother had to wait for Van Loo's father to die before they could free the family slaves because her and her mother were so adamant against slavery. Just imagine a spy ring for the Union within the Confederate capital just over a mile from the White House of the Confederacy. I think I think I Google Maps it and it was like 1.7 miles or something like that. Of course um, you did. <laughs> right, right. And this is another instance of history right beneath your feet, right? The Van Loo Mansion stood where Bellevue Elementary School is right now in Churchill. The Van Loo Mansion was used 
as a place for Union prisoners of war to hide before they could try to disguise them and get them out to Union lines, you know, to smuggle them out of the Confederate capital. It was right there in Churchill, those streets. I want to move on to a story that is different than we usually tell. And this was in episode two, and it's Morgan Harrington's disappearance. It's different because, as you know, I started out wanting to do a true crime podcast. And then we ended up doing this wonderful history podcast. But I always still had this mission of, okay, but we're going to sprinkle in kind of more recent history because not everything happened 200 years ago. And not everything is monumental history. I don't know. It was just something we wanted to include. And I think it was a really successful story in episode two. And I actually had a couple people reach out and go, I wasn't expecting that story, but I loved hearing that story. We were planning and we wanted to do that story. I think I said to you, you are going to have to write that. It was before I had arrived to Central Virginia. Speaking to how personal I think that story is to a lot of people in Central Virginia, we had one of our coworkers tell us I had to stop listening to it. I had to stop listening to that segment because it was bringing up too many of those emotions for me of that time and how horrible that was. You said it best in the episode that her parents kind of laying their hearts bare to the public every day for how many months waiting for justice. The story is best told from their point of view because I think you can really feel the emotion of Dan and Jill Harrington throughout that segment. For me, since I listen to true crime podcasts just about every day of my life, the one thing I didn't want to do was glorify or lose the people in it because to me those are the ones I always tune out of and don't like. I like the stories where you know the victim and it's she's more than a victim. She's a human and you know her family and you know why this was such a terrible time in our community. So I hope that we were able to capture that because that was my goal is to make sure that we don't lose our empathy. And we have to thank Sam Maneri for her research in the Morgan Harrington story, as well as in episode three, her research on the anthrax attacks. And that was another more recent moment in history. And you know what was funny is when we started writing that story, it didn't happen that long ago, but I kept going, I don't know how this ends. And my mom even called me while listening to this podcast going, I don't remember who did this or what happened. And I feel like when you hear the story, you kind of understand why, because there's never really that clear moment. You know, the FBI says, we think we know who did it and here's our evidence, but there was never really any resolution for the public. Sam's research for that segment was was fantastic. We have to give her a shout out. 100%. And I think that there's another story, right, that's not 200 or 150 years ago that I think a lot of listeners remember how that felt. This is bioterrorism. This is the unfortunate reality of what can happen in the 21st century um, after the worst tragedy that this country has ever experienced in the aftermath of 9-11. The best story to me out of episode three is Richard Evelyn Byrd. Just a phenomenal story. There's a really funny story for our listeners about how that came to be. We had a huge technical snafu and I'm on the phone with Colton because I didn't research for this interview and I'm relaying the questions from Colton 
two are our wonderful expert in this, Sheldon Bart, and it, behind the scenes, it was a technical nightmare, but the episode was beautiful. Wow, can I talk about the frustration I was feeling that morning uh, with nothing working, and we'd been trying to coordinate this interview with Mr. Bart in my research for this segment, I wasn't sure who we were going to interview. I was having trouble finding local experts, and actually my father-in-law pointed me in the direction of, of Mr. Bart and sent me a link to his page on the American Polar Society. We set up the interview like three weeks in advance, so we're very, I was very excited to do this interview. I had done all my research, nothing worked. Rachel, I think you had other things to do at the station that morning, and I was like, you need to get in the booth right now. Colton, I remember I like told Mr. Bart, just answer this question and keep talking because I had to step away while he was recording. And you held the phone up for me to hear him and I think I heard every fourth word that he said. I kept telling him while this was happening, Colton, this is a phenomenal interview. He is amazing and he really was. And the stories and the knowledge and to know that he actually did some of the things that Richard Evelyn Byrd did. He went to the polar regions, so he knows. He added so much color to the story. For a story like that, when you're talking about polar expedition, you need to talk to somebody who's been to the Arctic, right? Many people would think that my home state of Minnesota is considered the Arctic, but that's kind of a far cry from the areas that Mr. Bart has been to experience kind of that cold, desolate landscape that is the North and South Poles. Charles Lindbergh would have been a footnote of history that nobody remembers had Richard Evelyn Byrd won that contest to make the first transatlantic flight, right? And he ended up crash landing on the beaches of Normandy that, you know, a few decades later would be stormed by Allied troops in World War II. And then that moment as well where Floyd Bennett, uh, Byrd's best friend who had passed away, Byrd did not show much emotion, but apparently he was overcome with emotion at Bennett's funeral at Arlington National Cemetery. He takes a stone with him on that flight, dropping that stone out of the plane as they flew over to the bottom of the earth, right? It was his friend who was supposed to have been with him on that historic achievement, um, but uh, wasn't, but kind of brought him along. And that little memento, that token, speaks to the, the bond that they had in what was an incredible achievement. Let's go from one spectrum of the emotions to the other, from this great moment of sadness, but also kind of respect to episode four, the Jefferson Hotel and extreme laughter because as you wrote this story and I, you and I read everything back to each other, I could not get through it. Frankly, I think going in, I was like, this is going to be a pretty cool story to write, right? Because it's just kind of a cool part of the city of Richmond. but. As I'm on the Jefferson's website and I see the word alligator, and I just said, there's no way now that there were alligators in the Jefferson. And, well, there sure was, right? And, you know, the stories of the marble Jefferson during one of the fires and Valentine himself shows up and is like, how are we going to get this out of here? Well, let's, let's push it onto a mattress and drag him out of here. And his head hits the pavement and Jefferson's head pops off and it's just like, oh my gosh. So a headless Jefferson statue stands in a nearby yard for a few months before Valentine can repair this thing. I was in hysterics. You were in hysterics because I was in hysterics. Nobody could talk. <laughs> and alligators and again, the story that I think is our favorite little rabbit hole of season four of the old woman in the library. Just um, don't. Just don't repeat it. <laughs> It's just too good, I have to. She was known to be 
uh, you know, I think as the Jefferson Hotel website puts it, she was known to be a fan of the drink, right? And so she's in the library and thinks it's a footstool and a footstool starts moving. So she loses her mind, runs out, hotel staff come back. The alligator had already gone back to the pools. And so they just call her a crazy old drunk woman, apparently. And uh, as the story goes, she never, she never drank sherry again. <laughs> When I was listening to the Jefferson episode before we published it, there was something wrong with the edit around the alligator part. And I was like, Rachel, you doubled up on audio here. What, did, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, I meant to include the track where I couldn't stop laughing in the booth. So you like made an adjustment and I think took out one small section that had accidentally been doubled. And I thought, okay, we need to keep that in there because it really kind of spoke to that moment of you, again, being hysterics. Alone, mind you. There's no one with Rachel in the audio booth, so here she is alone in a closed little room and can't catch her breath because she's laughing too hard. You know, the world needs more bad to pompa jokes, and we all need a little more laughter. I think I think that's fair. <laughs> Nathaniel Bacon dies of dysentery. All I knew about that was what I learned in school about Bacon's Rebellion. And here's someone in the early throes of the American Revolution and trying to fight against the British. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I think boy, was everyone wrong. I think I think Luke Pecoraro said it best. Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. Uh, we were obviously very pleased to have him back this season. This is something that goes back to a statement that Thomas Jefferson made when he was president in 1800. Jefferson had gotten his hands on a manuscript that was written by Thomas Matthew, that disaffected planter who kind of touched off Bacon's Rebellion. And it was Thomas Matthew's account of the whole affair. And after reading this document, Jefferson commented that Nathaniel Bacon was not dissimilar to the patriot class of Americans who ended up rolling off British tyranny in 1776. I don't want to call out Jefferson for too terribly much uh, because those could be fighting words here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. But he didn't quite have all the facts. And Jefferson was like, oh, that's how this all happened. And so, of course, Bacon is this hero. You know, I believe it was a historian in the 40s or 50s, Thomas Jefferson Wharton Baker, I believe was his name, who took Jefferson's theory and ran with it. And again, Luke said that more recently historians have kind of debunked those things and said, apologies, Mr. Jefferson, that's not at all really how this went. Bacon was kind of a brutal, ruthless, lousy you know, fella, lousy fellow who was just <laughs> full of lice and dysentery who just wanted to slaughter Virginia Indians as a way to get an upper hand in the, the trade, you know, make his, his fortune. As Luke says, there aren't any heroes in this story. They're both pretty bad men. And the scary part, and we talked about the Game of Thrones moment, right, where Barclay bursts out of uh, kind of the main area of Jamestown and says, rips open his shirt and says, I think he says, fair mark. Uh, so shoot me. Go ahead, Nathaniel Bacon. You know, blow me away in front of everyone. Here's your chance. As Luke said, that was, that's been painted several times. It's well documented that actually happened. And Bacon, they burned down Jamestown. I mean, they, they had effectively run out the British government and Barclay was on the Eastern shore. And then Bacon, right as they're gaining the momentum they need, he up and dies in the woods. It's one of those moments where legend doesn't quite meet reality. 
And in episode five, we have another huge example of that with Lewis and Clark. Yeah, oh man, what what an interview that was. Again, I went into this going, we're going to talk about this journey and their discoveries and all the things they dealt with on their way out there. And that is really not at all what I got. What kind of an eye-opening interview that was for me with Dr. Gregory Smithers at VCU. who both of our sponsors, the Library of Virginia and the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, both of them recommended Dr. Smithers when I asked about the Lewis and Clark expert. They both said that not only will he be able to give you kind of what you're looking for on the expedition itself, but he also will have a very kind of interesting viewpoint of the relationship with Native Americans. And again, as we said at the beginning, pulling back the curtain on this myth-making of these quote-unquote American heroes, these two men who are celebrated as, wow, these pioneers of the American frontier. Yes, they explored that area. B would not have had a fraction of the success they did without help from Native Americans along the way. And yeah, I think the dynamic and the relationships that they had in seeing these Native Americans as just this inferior people, it kind of ties into the Nathaniel Bacon story, and a little less so in the way of slaughtering Native Americans. but seeing them as lesser people and people who had this resource, i.e. land, and they were someone to exploit and take it from. This also has the distinction of being the only story that we've ever had a disclaimer on. Hope to have Dr. Gregory Smithers back. He was great. We've loved all of our guests this season. Yes. Speaking of having a repeat guest, Also in episode five, the extraordinary Andy Talkoff, who has the most magical way of putting things in perspective for you. And here we are talking about Jefferson Davis and his election as the Confederate president. Not an easy topic to talk about in this day and age, in this climate we're in right now. Every once in a while, we'll get a letter from someone or an email from someone saying, why are you talking about the Confederacy? But you have to talk about the Confederacy to understand Again, how we got here today and all of the issues we're talking about today of a country so divided. Why not look back? Because history repeats itself. Andy, I just, one of the most, I think my favorite quote of season four. It takes radicals to start a revolution. But oftentimes, once a revolution has moved into the phase where they're starting to organize, it's moderates who come to lead because moderates in general are able to sort of bring the two extremes together. That is the first thing that came to my mind was, I hope she has the Talkov quote on those who come to lead a revolution because that for me as well was kind of like the whoa moment of that. And going back to what you said, we get emails and some angry emails about why you talk about these things. I think a lot of people think about some of these segments or things that we write, they, they see it as us glorifying them when clearly that is not the case. As you said, these are things that people, we believe, should be aware of, things that have happened around us, uh, whether, as we said, were recent uh, within the last decade or 250 years ago. These aren't glorifications, uh, I don't think. And I think that the people who see it that way are trying to find problems with it. Um, this is just something that 
that we feel needs to be uh, more widely known because frankly it's not taught the way in my opinion they should be to people to have them best understand these things i think a lot of people think of jefferson davis right as this radical if we're if we want to use that language this radical of the of this rebellion when in truth he wasn't really he was a middle of the road guy he wasn't the far outreach of those beliefs as as there were some of those politicians throughout the south at the time he wasn't a fire eater right exactly and we definitely want to have andy back on the podcast again yes <laughs> episode six i'll let you choose three fantastic segments the league of women voters organizing in virginia the angel of the confederacy sally Tompkins, which is a fascinating story but I think the one, the story that we need to talk about here, Rachel, is the history of VMI. As you said in that segment, sometimes when we write about these things, they find their way into the headlines of today. When we're writing about something that happened 182 years ago, right before you're getting ready to write that segment, kind of all of this, the Post article and governor ordering an investigation and now asking for another million dollars from the General Assembly to to investigate systemic racism at VMI. We had already done our interview long before, and I was just sitting down to write it, and then the headlines started going, and the news alert. I can't ignore that, but it's also not fair to Colonel Keith Gibson, who we never talked about any of that with, because it wasn't something that I had known when I'm doing the interview with him you know, many months ago. So it was a weird situation to be in, but it also speaks to why we tell these stories and why we share the history of institutions or buildings or people, because it always circles back around in some way. The VMI story is so interesting. There was so much in there I never knew, especially about the first collegiate students to fight in a battle. It has never happened before or since. And it was the Battle of Newmarket. You know, and there's some obviously some very big names who have come out of VMI. That great story in that segment about the union had burned VMI during the war and of that juxtaposition of how it's actually a good thing that VMI was never given the title of the West Point of the Confederacy, because had that been the case, it wouldn't exist today. When talking about VMI, this idea of citizen soldier, right? I think that's an idea that is more alive in society today than perhaps any time in the last century, right? If we're thinking about militias and things like that, the word militia is being used a lot in recent years and this idea of citizen soldier and this idea of the founding of VMI wanting to train the next wave of citizen soldier following the American Revolution. That idea still lives on to this day. Americans that feel that they need to protect themselves and, and be that citizen soldier in case there's ever what they feel as overreach from the federal government. I mean, that's kind of how this country was founded, right? An overreach of parliament, of the British and this rebellion lead, you know, as we say, to how we got here today. I speak for Colton when I say this. This is probably one of the most rewarding jobs that we've ever had, that we kind of created for ourselves and have gone out on this limb and we do all this extra work and work all these extra hours. And it can be annoying at times, but it's also so rewarding. And we tell you all these stories from a year ago 
from 10 years ago and 200 years ago. And we try really hard to stay in the middle for you guys, but lay out some of the truths that you may not have heard, share the stories you may not have heard, and share stories that you may not want to hear, but you need to hear in the context of today. 100%. And I think I speak for not only us or many of our coworkers, but also much of the public is the news of today, the headlines of today, of now. Oh man, can it get exhausting, especially on, you know, five days a week, seven days a week. If you're watching a, a cable news network, it's a 24-hour news network. It just doesn't stop. This position that you, myself, and, and Kate kind of created for ourselves of like, well, let's start this and see how we'll see what happens. It's almost a good kind of break for us, but at the same time, things happening today are really just a reflection of things that have happened in the past. We couldn't tell these stories without Kate. She's not here today, but we send her a thousand thank yous for always being supportive and always helping us get the final version of these episodes out to all of you. She deserves a slow clap. Thanks everyone for listening to our bonus episode for season four. That's a wrap. We're going to take a little break, rest our minds, and gear up for a season five. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12, in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you to all of our guests this season and to our sponsors at the Library of Virginia and the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. We couldn't do this without all of you. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life sometime in the future. <laughs>